Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, all of us know Romans 8.28. If we don't know it by heart, we would at least know the gist of what Romans 8.28, that God is working all things for those who love God. God is working all things for his people. God is working all things for the good of his people and which is ultimately for his glory. And what that means is that, you know, when it says all things, it means all things. It means in the mundane things God is working. It means in the complications of life God is working. It means that when we are joyous and things are going great, God is working. It also means that when times are difficult in our lives, God is yet working. Why? Because God works all things And he's working all those things in all those circumstances for his glory and for our good. And the interesting thing is that even when things go bad, that God is still continuing to work. And one of the ways in which he does that is through this principle of sowing and reaping. We read from Galatians 6 this morning where Apostle Paul says, what you sow, you reap. You know, a a colloquial way of saying that would be what goes around comes around. It's a way of saying that God will use... Uh, certain circumstances and even people sometimes to expose our sin for us to change and to be conformed to the image of his son. So for example, if we struggled with impatience, God may put an impatient person in your life and my life so that over time we see a mirror image of our own sin in that person for us to turn away from that and to rely on God and to reflect his character. Perhaps if we are an unkind person, an unloving person, maybe a cheat of a person, God may instill circumstances and people in our lives Essentially then to reflect our sin in circumstances and people so that now we would see our sin boldly before us, not to punish us, not to in a way to destroy us, but so that we would turn. We would turn from relying on ourselves, we would turn from holding on to our sin, and we would turn to our Lord and trust in Him and rely on Him and follow him. This morning's sermon I've titled As God's 
provision in the life of Jacob. Meaning God's providential working in the life of Jacob. Now just to refresh our memory from what has just happened in chapter 28, I just want to do a quick recap. In Genesis 28, a couple of weeks ago, we saw how Jacob was at this place called Bethel, or the place that he named as Bethel, where God revealed himself to Jacob for the first time in a dream as he was on this journey. And in that dream, he dreamt about this stairway of angels coming up and down. This stairway which basically had one end in the heavens and the other end on earth. And it was showing that this was a connection point. That God was coming down near to Jacob. He had come down from heaven to be near to Jacob. And he would take care of Jacob and his presence would be with Jacob. And God also revealed to him that Jacob would receive all the Abrahamic blessings of having the promised land and having multiple offspring and that he would be a blessing to others. And at the end of all that, God even said, I will be with you, Jacob, wherever you go, and I will keep you wherever you go. And we saw that you know, and despite this grand revelation from God, Jacob misunderstood God. Some of those pagan influences of God were still there with Jacob. You know, he thought, oh, because God has appeared here, this must be the connection point. This place must be a very special place. The gateway to God, the connection point to heaven. When God was simply saying, hey, I will be with you. I'm the great one and I will be with you wherever you go, not just in this place. And we saw that at the end of it, this scheming Jacob is bargaining with God. Where he says, God, okay, prove to me that you will take care of me. Prove to me that you will provide for me and prove to me all these things and that you will bring me back to the promised land. Then you can be my God. And what we saw there is that as much as Jacob is God's chosen, he has much to learn about God. And so it's after that we come to Genesis chapter 30. And we're going to see how God is going to continue to be with him and provide for him and work in Jacob's life in Genesis 29 verses 1 through 30. And we'll look at this section under two headings. We'll look at Jacob's encounter at the well in verses 1 through 14. And then we'll look at Laban's deception of Jacob in verses 15 through to 30. And what we'll see here is how God works. Sometimes not as evident, 
But as we really look at what's happening, it, it becomes very clear God is actually at work even in this scene that we're looking at with Jacob. So after this grand revelation of God at Bethel, Jacob is carrying on his journey. If you remember, he's moving away from home, moving away from the promised land. Why is he going away from, uh, going away from his home? Because if you remember, his brother Esau wanted to kill him for stealing the blessing from him. And specifically, Jacob is going to Padan Aram uh, in uh, the region of Haran, uh, which is Nehor's family, Abraham's extended family, because his parents didn't want him to get married to godless Canaanite women. They want him to get married to the blessed line of Shem, which is the extended family of Abraham in Padan Aram. So Jacob is now on this journey. He's going to find a safe place in his uncle's home, and he's also looking to find a wife there. And as we look into this account of Jacob finding a wife for himself, it should also cause us to think of Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. See, because there are lots of similarities or echoes from Genesis 24. The servant goes to the exact same place, Padan Aram, in search of a wife for Isaac. And he goes to the same family, the family of Nahor, in search of a bride for Isaac. And then when the servant reaches near his destination, he reaches a well near the destination. And then the bride-to-be comes to the well. And then after that encounter with the bride-to-be, the bride-to-be then runs off home, tells what's happened, and then Laban comes running to greet the servant. And then finally, we see the man and the woman get married. So there's a lot of similarities between Abraham's servant finding a wife with Jacob finding a wife there, here. But there are also some stark contrasts that we will see, stark differences that we will see from Genesis 24. And that should tell us about what's different about what's taking place here in Genesis 29. And we'll look at them as we go through this passage. So Genesis 29, let's just look at the first Three verses. Then Jacob went on his way and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the sheep were drawn. The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now remember, Jacob is all alone. And this would have been an arduous and difficult journey all the way from his home. 
it would have taken him at least a few weeks to get there. You know, there could have been bandits and thieves and enemies on the way, but Jacob arrives safely to Padan Aram. And he comes to this open field. He's probably just outside the city gates. And there's a well there. And if you remember, Abraham's servant, when he was in the outskirts of the city, and he was near the well, if you look back at Genesis 24, 11 and 12, what the servant did at that time, whilst he was just outside the city, is he sought the Lord for guidance and help. Lord, would you please help me find the right bride for my master's son? What's the difference here? You don't see Jacob doing that as he's coming to this well and nearing his destination. So Jacob is in this open field near this well. He sees three flocks of sheep around the well and there's a large stone over the well. And this large stone over the well, it served as a kind of protection. You know, water was a precious commodity in those days. As I've mentioned before, you know, they didn't have taps in their homes. They'd have to draw water from the wells. And especially in arid places like this, water was a very precious commodity and wells were the main access to water. So a large stone was placed over the well. It would keep outsiders from easily accessing the water. And it would also provide protection from dust and you know, all kinds of other contaminants from going into the water. Even protecting people and animals from falling into the well. And the custom of the day was that once all of the flocks were gathered. You know, not just one or two flocks, but all of the flocks were gathered. The shepherds would go then and lift off this large stone from the opening of the well. Because it would take a lot of effort to lift this large stone. So it made more sense that once all the flocks were gathered, this would be done. And then in this way, the, the flocks were watered and then they would put back the large stone over the well. So Jacob has just come there, he sees this large stone, three flocks there, and the shepherds there, and he starts to initiate his conversation. Verse four to six. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So a few things as Jacob converses with the shepherds, he understands. First, he understands he's in the right place. Oh, these shepherds are from Haran. That's exactly where he's going. So it's just right there, the city. 
And they know Laban the, from the family of Neho. This is his uncle that he's looking for. And then they even point to Rachel, Laban's daughter, who's coming in the distance with her sheep. Now remember, Jacob is also looking for a wife, and his parents said, go find a wife from this family as well. So he's probably thinking, hey, here's possibly my future wife coming. Now again here, unlike Abraham's servant, who responded in praise when he realized that he had found the right place and the right bride. In Genesis 24, 26 and 27, the servant responded by giving praise to God. Thank you, Lord, for bringing me here. Or thank you for bringing this right woman right here in front of me. Again, the difference here is Jacob does no such thing. Instead, Jacob, true to his character, the self-reliant, smart-alecky kind of person that he is, he arrogantly starts speaking to the shepherds. Verses 7 and 8. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So Jacob is essentially telling the shepherd, hey, this is the wrong time of the day to be gathering all the livestock together. I mean, it's just past noontime. Just quickly give them water and get them back out to pasture. Jacob is essentially telling the shepherds how to do their job. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you want to be doing if you're the foreigner in a place. But the shepherds say, no, we can't, because that's not the custom. See, this is a pretty large stone, and so unless all the flocks are here, it's not worth our time. Now verse 9 says, While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now this is again similar but different to what happened to Abraham's servant in Genesis 24.15. Over there we saw the servant seeking the Lord's guidance and praying when Rebecca came on the scene and he's saying, Lord, help, help me to figure out if she's the one. The contrast here is Jacob, instead of seeking the Lord, he's bossing around the local shepherds. And he's asserting himself. And while he's doing that, Rachel comes onto the scene with her father's flock. Now verses 10 and 11. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. 
So Jacob, on seeing Rachel, pretty much flexes his muscles. That's what he does. He uses all of his strength and removes this large stone from the well and waters Rachel's flock or Laban's flock. See, what you see here is a Jacob who's a self-reliant man and just doing what he wants to do. He disregards the custom of the region. And all by himself, he removes this large stone. And it's quite likely he's doing this to impress Rachel. I mean, Jacob is the go-getter kind of person, relies on no one else but himself. And once he sets his eyes on something, he gets it. Similar to the birthright. He wanted the birthright, he had a plan, and he went and got it. Now he wants a wife. He sees this woman and knows she's from Laban's family. And now he's trying to impress her. Self-reliant, relying on himself. And it says, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept at wept out loud. Now, I don't think this is anything sexual or inappropriate here. This is quite likely a familial greeting. You know, he's greeting his cousin, so to speak. And he weeps loudly, and these are tears of joy. Why? Because after such a long journey, he's come to the right place and at this particular time and he's come to the right family and, and here's this beautiful woman. Everything is falling into place. Again, there's a difference in the way Abraham's servant responded and the way Jacob responds here. Abraham's servant on discovering that, on discovering Rebekah after he thanks and praises God. Remember what he did? He puts forward a test because he's got very little time and he wants to find out the kind of character Rebekah has. Remember to see whether she would give him water and water his 10 camels as well. Jacob, on the other hand, he doesn't give thanks to God. Nor does he wait to see what kind of character Rachel has. Jacob rather flexes his own muscles, relies on his own strength, relies on his own discernment, and on the basis purely on physical attraction, he is moving toward Rachel, rather than even trying to figure out what kind of character Rachel has. You know, interestingly, later on we will see Rachel is the kind of person who is an idolater and she will steal her father's idols when they leave from uh, Laban's house. That's the kind of character she's got. Now verses 12 to 14. And Jacob told Rachel that she was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son and she ran and told her father. 
As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So similar to Rebecca's response when the servant was there, Rachel now runs back to her home tells Laban what happens. And now Laban comes out running. And if we knew something about Laban that time, we remember, if you remember, you know, Laban sees these jewelry given to Rebekah. And then he comes out and he sees all these riches, 10 camels worth of gifts. And he's just ecstatic and thinking, oh, this, this is going to be for me. And I wonder if when he heard this is somebody from Abraham's house, he was thinking the same. But he comes running to Jacob. There's no ten camels, there's no riches, there's no nothing. There's just this, this guy standing there. But at the very least, he knows he's a pretty strong guy who can lift up a large stone from the well that the shepherds usually don't do themselves. Laban's an opportunist, and I'm sure he's already thinking, I wonder how I can put him to use. And the text there says that Jacob told Laban all these things. It's a little bit ambiguous. You know, what did Jacob actually tell Laban? I would think knowing Jacob's character, he wouldn't have said how he deceived his brother or his father. He may have said, you know what, I'm the recipient, I'm the heir of Abraham. My father has blessed me. Maybe he may have explained all that. And then he would have said, you know, I've come here to look for a wife, perhaps. Either way, you know, Laban would have at least understood, okay, here's a strong man from my sister's family, but he doesn't have any riches unlike Abraham's servant who came. So something is suspect here. You know, there are two things as we think of this session, this section in Genesis 29 that should really stand out as we think of Genesis 24 and in how Abraham's servant sought a wife for his master's son. In this entire section, there is no mention of God. Zero. And yet, God is providentially working behind the scenes. See, the Lord promised to Jacob in Bethel that he would be with him and would keep him and he would have numerous descendants and he would be brought back to the promised land. And now God was slowly fulfilling that promise. God had brought Jacob safely to Haran. God had providentially brought him to this particular well where he met these shepherds who told him about Laban and about Laban's daughter, Rachel. And even though Jacob thought it was the wrong time of the day to be gathered around this well, Jacob meets Rachel at this wrong time of the day 
at this particular well. God was certainly working behind the scenes to bring about his will and bring about Jacob's good. But at the same time, as, as we think of it, we okay, so with what God has said and with what is happening, as we connect the two, we see, oh yes, God absolutely is working behind the scenes. But then we have to think again. But there is no mention of God in this section. And that goes to show just the kind of man Jacob is at this point. He's a self-reliant man. Relying on his own strength and wisdom to get things done. Unlike Abraham's servant, Jacob neither relies on God for guidance, nor does he praise God for providentially bringing him and orchestrating all these things in a favorable manner. Jacob is acting in a way where he thinks he's the one in charge, even though God is the one who's actually bringing all this about. You know, one lesson that we can learn from this section as believers is that as believers, we should understand that in life, there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. There are no happenstance or, oh, that was just pure chance or, oh, it just happened by luck. There's no such thing. And as believers, we need to recognize that. It is all of God's providential working. Sometimes we're aware of God's working and other times we are unaware. But it doesn't mean that when we're not aware of God's working, it does not mean that therefore God is not working. He is still working behind the scenes. God is working all things for the good of his people. He's working all the time. You know, and, and the wonderful thing is, God is gracious to bless his children even when they don't deserve it, even when they don't acknowledge him, even when they don't even acknowledge that, hey, this is all God's doing in my life. God doesn't stop his favor on his children. And that's a wonderful thing for us to know. You know, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything good that we have, it is from God. Whether we realize it or not, it is all from God. And yet, isn't it, isn't it true that so often, you know, we disregard God's providential working, we disregard God's blessing toward us. And we just see it as, oh, that's, that's because I worked hard. That's because of all my diligence. That's because of how clever I was. Or, or because all these circumstances came together. When all along, it was God working. God is always at work. If we will just open our eyes and look for it. 
You know, this is something that I've, you know, been convicted of over the last, particularly the last few years. To be mindful of God's working in our lives on a daily basis. To, to look for it, to seek uh, and really look at, you know, where is God working? How has God worked? And a, and a great way to do this is, you know, perhaps by the end of the day, when you think through your day and you think of things to thank God for, you're more likely then tuning your mind and your heart to look for how God is working in your life where you're cultivating a heart of thankfulness by the end of the day. What can I thank God for in all that has happened during this day? Because I know none of these things have happened just by chance. Nothing happened by accident. Nothing happened by luck. This is all of God's doing. How can I thank God? And it will slowly start training your heart and mind to look for how God is working in just the mundane things of life but you're acknowledging that God is doing a work and you're thanking him. And you know what that does is it causes us to become less reliant on ourselves and more reliant on him and to trust him and to seek after him even more. The more we do it on a daily basis, we will become more and more looking toward God. The Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, he was such a God-centered person. I mean, it was almost like every five minutes, it's like, okay, Lord, help me. You know, thank you for bringing me here. Something happens, gives praise to God, and then goes, Rebecca comes. Oh, is she the one? I want to know her character. Lord, help me. God makes that clear, gives praise to God right then and there in front of them. Then he goes to the house to Laban and his family. Before he starts the meal, he says, I want to tell you what God has done. He's the kind of person that is always looking at God, thanking God, and even drawing people to look to God and say, look at what God is doing. Look at how great he is. See, this section is meant to remind us through the negative example of Isaac, pardon me, of Jacob, that we shouldn't be like Jacob, but rather we should be more like Abraham's servant, who is seeking the Lord, who's trusting the Lord, and even when he might seem behind the scenes, we're looking for ways and understanding that God is at work and giving praise and thanks to God and relying on him. So that's Jacob's encounter at the well and where God was providentially working and made everything favorable for Jacob. Now here's a question though. Now seeing Jacob's life up to this point, I mean he's been a deceptive person, a sinful person, self-focused person, and things are still going really well for Jacob. I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, does it matter then as believers whether we sin or not? Does it matter whether we honor the Lord or not? 
I mean, if, if we are God's children, regardless, God will bless us, right? So d- d- does it matter then whether we sin or not? Because it seems like, you know, Jacob, with everything that he's done, he's getting away scot-free, and God is continuing to bless him. And this is where we come to the second part of this passage, Laban's deception of Jacob. And what we'll see here is that even here, God is at work. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? So Jacob has been with his uncle Laban for about a month, and he's shown himself to be a good worker and perhaps even a uh, you know, hard-working shepherd. Two things would have been clear to Laban that was different uh, about Jacob compared to Abraham's servant. Unlike Abraham's servant, Jacob didn't have any money with him. And two, unlike the servant, Jacob was in no hurry to leave Laban's home. So Laban, pretending to be concerned for Jacob, says, Oh, don't don't serve me for nothing. Tell me what your wages are. Really what Laban is doing, he's scheming. He's thinking of, okay, here's this young man who works hard. How can I benefit from this guy who has come to my house for a bribe? You know, how can I, you know, have control over him and use him for my benefit? Now, there's some background information given about Laban's daughter that sets the scene for the scheming of Laban. And what we find out is that Laban has two daughters, not just one. Verses 16 and 17. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, it's difficult to understand what this actually means when it says Leah's eyes were weak. It could either mean that weak in the sense of she had tender eyes, meaning figuratively Leah was a tender, compassionate person, emphasizing the character of Leah. Or it could mean that Leah didn't have the you know, eyes that had the sort of spark that Rachel had. It could mean either one. You know, either way, the, the emphasis seems to me that Rachel was the more physically attractive daughter. And verse 18 says, Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. I want you to think about Jacob up to this point. I mean, he's, he's shown himself to be a not loving person at all. He's a very self-centered, selfish person. He deceived his father, stole his brother's birthright and blessing, just a go-getter, does what he wants, 
relies on his own strength. And so even here, Jacob's love for Rachel, in light of his character, you could say it's a kind of worldly love. It's based purely on physical attraction, just his fleshly desire and nothing else. And so Jacob says, because he was so attracted to Rachel, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now in those days, there was a bride price that would be given to the family. If you remember, Abraham's servant came with ten camels full of the choicest gifts to give to the, the bridal family. But Jacob didn't have anything. So instead of, you know, because he didn't have anything, you know, he takes things into his own hands and he sets the terms. Hey, I'm going to work for you seven years, Laban, for that younger daughter of yours, for that physically attractive woman of yours. And really, this, this work for seven years was significantly greater than a normal bride price. Significantly greater, so much so that Laban wouldn't be able to refuse. And Laban, being the kind of schemer that he is, he's like, oh, that's great. You know, seven years of work from this hard worker, I'll take it. But while Jacob is very specific, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Notice Laban's response. He's quite ambiguous uh, about his agreement with Jacob. Verse 19 says, Laban said, Oh, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. Did you see that? It's a little bit non-specific. It's a bit more general. He simply says, I'd much rather give her to you. He doesn't necessarily specify which daughter. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So these seven years just went by quickly because Jacob had strong affections for Rachel. But as soon as this time has passed, Jacob, the self-reliant, self-asserting person, impatiently comes to Laban and demands his, that his wife be given to him for the time that he has served. Notice verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is complete. It's very emphatic how he speaks to him. It's not a petition or anything. He's almost commanding him, telling him, Give me my wife. Not the kind of way you want to deal with your future father-in-law if you're thinking of marrying his daughter. But what Jacob doesn't realize is that Laban is more shrewd and more deceptive than Jacob. Laban is the kind of person you want to be extra careful with when you deal with him. You want to read the you know, all the fine prints and the footnotes before you sign a contract with Laban. That's the kind of person he is. And Jacob simply said, give me my wife for the time that I've served. 
And notice, Laban doesn't say yes or no. Because if he says yes, then he'll have to give Rachel. If he says no, then Jacob will probably think something's wrong. So he doesn't say anything. He simply initiates the ceremonies surrounding the wedding. Laban has plotted a most deceptive scheme for Jacob so that he can take advantage of this young, hard-working man and still look like the good guy on the outside. Verse 20, verses 22 to 24. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. So Laban called all the guests. They feast together. And now it's evening time and... Laban gives his older daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel to Jacob as his bride. In fact, Laban even gives a servant girl named Zilpah as a wedding gift to the newly married daughter. Jacob has no idea that he's deceived till the marriage is consummated and he wakes up in the morning. Now, in case you're wondering, how is this possible? How is it that Jacob didn't know that the bride presented to him was Leah and not Rachel? Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, the, the, the use of the word feast there, the marriage feast, it often involved you know, a, lot of eat, a lot of food, but also drinking wine. So it's quite possible that Jacob may have been a little bit tipsy. Then secondly, brides during those days were heavily veiled. And then on top of that, we read that this happened in the evening. Remember, they don't have lights like this. If anything, it's candles and torches and things like that. So, you know, in terms of what you see, there's not much. So there's a little bit of intoxication you know, the, the bride-to-be is veiled, and it's evening time. You can see how this can happen. And so Jacob was easily deceived as a result. And then Jacob wakes up in the morning, and you can think of the shock and the horror. He's clearly distraught because he's married Leah now, and, and he can't not marry her anymore. I mean, this is not the woman that he thought he would be marrying. Verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? What is this that you have done? I wonder if Jacob sensed the irony in his own words. Because his mother Rebecca warned him of Esau's anger against him because of what he had done to his brother. Or his father's words that your brother has deceived me. Same words. I wonder as he was saying these things, some of these things rung true in his mind. And then on top of that, 
Listen to Laban's response because it leaves Jacob speechless. Verse 26. Laban said, Oh, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So Laban is, you know, trying to play the innocent man. And he's saying, hey, Jacob, it's not the custom in our country. It's not the custom in our home. It's improper to marry off the younger one before the older one. You see, we have standards. We are upright people. We don't do things like that. The firstborn is always given the priority. Jacob has finally met his match. Jacob was the scheming one, the one who always got what he wanted by his own strength and wisdom. Now Jacob is the deceived one. But you say, why didn't Laban just say anything about this custom before, like seven years before maybe? Well, because Laban is a more bigger deceiver than Jacob. These words from Laban, in some sense, would have served as a stinging rebuke to Jacob. That the firstborn is to be given priority over the younger. See, Jacob was getting a taste of his own medicine. He would have understood how his brother Esau would have felt and how his brother would have felt when he deceived them. And just like Jacob deceived his father by taking advantage of the fact that he was blind, Laban deceived Jacob by taking advantage of the fact that Jacob wouldn't be able to see clearly given it was dark and he'd be veiled, the bride would be veiled and he'd be intoxicated a little bit. Previously, Jacob deceptively pretended to be the older brother to his father. Now Laban has just done the reverse. Laban has deceptively replaced the younger with the older. I mean, what kind of father-in-law would do this? Oh, one just like the son-in-law. Jacob is reminded slowly but surely that this is how he has been to others. But Laban, being the greedy, shrewd, self-centered man he is, he doesn't care about what this will do to his daughters, the kind of tension and division that it may cause in the family. Laban simply wants to profit from this situation and knows that he has Jacob exactly where he wants him. And so he says to Jacob, verse 27, Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. So Laban says, finish the week-long wedding celebration with Leah. And I'll give you Rachel as your second wife if you serve me another seven years. Now at this point, Jacob could have said, you know what, I've learned my lesson, I'll just have Leah as my wife, and I'll go back to my land. 
And it would be wrong for me to marry another woman, even if it's Rachel. Because that's not God's plan or desire. But Jacob, remember, he's, he's just following his fleshly desires. It's just the physical attraction. He has strong affections for Rachel. And what we'll see in the coming weeks is that incidentally, Leah is the more spiritual of the two sisters. So in verse 28 it says, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to, his, to be his wife. Laban gave him his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So at the end of this scene, you have Jacob who came to Haran looking for a wife. Now he has not one wife, but two wives with two maidservants. And he loves one wife more than the other. And this is going to cause many years of conflict and tension in the home. I mean, this is a sad scene. A distressing scene. And someone might ask, but, but God promised Jacob that he would be with him and keep him wherever he went. Where is God present in this scene? While God was working, even through the deception of Laban, where God was disciplining Jacob. Yes, Jacob is the chosen one. Yes, Jacob is the recipient of the Abrahamic blessing. But Jacob also has a lot of growing and maturing to do. So God disciplines him through Laban, through the deception and through the years of difficulty that will follow for Jacob. This is really a case of Jacob reaping what he has sown. Now I want you to think, I want you to understand this though. This is not God in any way being brutal and cruel toward Jacob to sort of crush his faith. Now we know that God, for his children, he will do no harm. So this is actually the act of a loving father toward his rebellious child, so that his rebellious child can change and grow in his character and his dependence on the Lord, rather than foolishly trust himself. It's almost like through Laban, God has put a mirror in front of Jacob so Jacob could see himself through Laban. So that Jacob can stop being the schemer, stop being the one who relies on his own strength and wisdom and become one who wholly relies on the Lord. This is really a loving act of God. Yes, 
It is Laban's deception, but God is also working through this deception behind the scenes. God is always at work for the good of his people. The Lord's discipline is a mercy in our life to mold us and to shape us to be the kind of person God wants us to be. Proverbs 3, 11-12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Now, if somebody were to ask, but, you know, why did Jacob have to go through so many hard years of suffering? One theologian put it this way, because God had so much hard work to do on Jacob. That's why so many long years of suffering for Jacob, because those long years of suffering is the hard work that God is going to work in the life of Jacob. That's how hard a person he was. And even though the Lord's discipline can be painful, we must remember that it is always for our good. You know, in the previous section we saw that how in the mundane things, the providential workings, we can be oblivious to God's working. But you know, sometimes we can also be oblivious to the discipline of the Lord. See, we we might look at a difficult situation, some difficulty that we're going through, and simply say, oh, this difficulty happened because of that person, or because of that circumstance, or because, you know, this is a sin-cursed world and life is just generally difficult, where we're busy pointing the finger at things around us. When all the while, God may be disciplining us to point out our own sin that we can turn away from. Now this doesn't mean that therefore every difficulty and every trial that we have is God's discipline. But it is certainly a possibility. And so we should see, you know, during those times, if there's any sin that we need to repent and turn away from and even get the help of others around us to think about it. If what is happening is the Lord's discipline because of the way we are of some kind of unrepentant living or not. But ultimately, God will bring even the difficulty for the good of his people. Now this morning as you've been sitting here, I wonder if there's anyone sitting here listening that is not a Christian. Someone who does not really follow Jesus. See, the Bible says that every human being is born in sin. And therefore, every human being naturally by himself will simply live for himself. He'll simply live for his glory and not for the glory of God. He will continue to reject God and say, no, 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 I'm going to live my own way, my own strength, my own standards, my own way of living. And sometimes it can seem slightly moral on the outside. 
But regardless, there is a rejection of God and His ways. And here's the thing, the Bible also says that God is a holy and just and righteous God. And He cannot tolerate sin in His presence. And all who continue to live in sin for themselves and not for the glory of God will be condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire. And so no man naturally by himself because there is sin in him and he continues to sin will ever be able to come into the presence of this holy and righteous God by his own effort. It's not possible for man. And this is the hopeless plight of sinful man. But here's the good news. God is also glorious and gracious and merciful. Whereby he sent his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago to come into this world in the form of a man. And he lived this life perfectly only for the glory of God. And at God's appointed time, he died on the cross, taking the place of sinners like you and me. And he bore the just wrath of God, the, the justice of God on himself for sinners like you and me. He took the judgment that was due for sinners like you and me. And then he died and rose again, providing a way by which sinners can be forgiven of your sin and be made right with God because of what Jesus has done. Yes, God is just, God is righteous, God is holy, but he's also merciful and gracious. Turn to him while there is time. Turn to Jesus and see what he has done and believe in him. And if you say today you believe, then I would say to you, turn from your sin, turn from living for yourself, turn from living to make much of yourself and live for Jesus and for his glory because that is an evidence that you are truly a follower of Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, this passage should remind us that left to ourselves, we are still weak. We are still prone to rely on ourselves. But praise be to God because of what Jesus has done, that God is present with us always and he's constantly at work. He's at work through the joyous times, He's at work through the mundane times and he's at work even through the difficult times because he's working all things for our good and for his glory. And as we understand that God is always working for his glory and our good in everything, may it cause us to look for ways in which God is working. May it cause us to thank Him and to be ever dependent on Him and to live for His glory and to make much of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the great God You are. We thank You for calling us to Yourself. 
We thank you for your son and for his death on the cross on our behalf, by which we have been made right with you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells in us, that is continuing, who is continuing to change us from the inside out, making us more into the image of your Son. And we thank you that you are continually at work, both inside and outside, working all things for your glory and for our good. How can we respond to you other than say thank you? Thank you for your gracious work in our life. Thank you for being with us and not forsaking us. Thank you for leading us and guiding us and changing us and giving us the privilege by your grace to give you glory. Lord, we pray that in the good times and the bad times, we would see your wonderful work and it would cause us to rely on you and live for you alone. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.